As a bolt of lightning struck the lofty turrets of Victor's haunted laboratory, the mad scientist cackled. Master, lisped Igor, Victor's diminutive hunchbacked assistant. It is time. And indeed it was. Blue sparks of white-hot electricity coruscated around the weather vane, running into two probes that went straight into the body of the monster. Victor beheld it now with maniacal glee, its huge stature, the zigzag stitching across its cheek, its square head and green skin, and of course, a huge bolt sticking out of each side of its neck. Igor cranked a big rusty lever, channeling all the might of the terrifying electrical storm into the monster's body, and the creature shot bolt upright, arms outstretched. As if on cue, a swell of organ music began to play from a nearby cathedral. Ha 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 ha! Victor laughed heartily. At last, my creation! He lives, and I shall call him Frankenstein! That is not what happens in Frankenstein. But I think that's... I don't remember that bit. (laughs) I think that's many people's perception of it. And I think it's interesting (laughs) talking about a book that people have quite a defined idea of that's kind of buried into their pop culture memory, (laughs) but is actually completely inaccurate to a book that's actually quite beautiful and gentle and poetic. And even the monster that people think as being a sort of trademark ghoul is quite sort of erudite and and well-read and and educated yeah Yeah. so maybe now we should hear an actual excerpt from the book well it's interesting something that you've said on the podcast many many times before is that um we've we've said this in relation to like lord of the rings or 1984 um that certain books you don't really need to have read Mm. to know what they're about and what happens in them because they're so uh, you know, Dracula is one. A Christmas Carol is one. They're so embedded in the sort of, uh, like you say, the the cultural psyche. And Frankenstein sort of is, apart from the fact that it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, like you say, so many people now, the universal Boris Karloff Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster, has become people's idea. Mm. Of, of not just the image of, of the creature, but the book itself. But the book actually goes like this. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me, that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. (coughs) (laughs) It's such good literature. It just really hits the back of the throat. beautiful. (laughs) It's absolutely beautiful, and... um, uh, you've got uh, uh, like a graphic novel version mm. there, haven't you? Yeah, uh, I do. And it's really, really cool, actually. Maybe yeah. we'll talk about it later. But one one of the best things about it is that it has uh, scans of uh, Mary Shelley's actual notebooks. And you see the sort of the, the first version of that scene handwritten. And it's so iconic. Um, and what I hadn't known until I'd read that 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 graphic novel version was that when it you know because it originated famously 
is a short story um on the shores of lake geneva with uh with byron and polidori etc um and when it was going to just be a short story it began with on a dreary night of november oh. i love that <laughs> i loved i loved seeing that anyway so that's the real book that's the real frankenstein what's the real breakfast well now we've put that mystery to rest um the breakfast um it's interesting we can kind of uh, hark back to lord of the rings uh, from our september episode yeah. where we found a completely vegan recipe in the tolkien recipe book um and in frankenstein we have another um vegetarian or vegan sympathizer at least um in an unexpected form uh, and i'm just going to read a little quote here from the creature uh, who, when he's uh, telling his tale to Victor, says, My food is not that of man. I do not destroy the lamb and the kid to glut my appetite. Acorns and berries afford me sufficient nourishment. My companion will be of the same nature as myself and will be content with the same fare. So um, the monster is, uh, or creature, I should say, is in effect um, extolling the virtues of a vegan diet there. <laughs> so a bit the trailblazer yeah, is the creature. And um, yeah. we are having a, a similarly rustic <laughs> rustic breakfast this morning. Yeah, we took our cue from from the creature. Um, where we thought most of the uh, book at breakfast breakfasts are quite carb heavy, uh, <laughs> so we're having some granola, uh, living like the creature on 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 nuts and berries. So who knew the monster was so nice? I mean, he, he did kill that boy, but um, but he he doesn't uh, he doesn't slaughter sheep. So that that's something. <laughs> it reminds me of that the thing that was doing the rounds a while ago. Um, there's an article in in the Sun about how snowflake students claim that the monster in Frankenstein was actually misunderstood and they feel sorry for him. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was sort of commenting, but 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 that's what the book is. <laughs> Um, now it, it's a strange one because we have the same origin story for this book, mm. albeit different. Yeah, we. Um, sorry, I'm just uh, crunching my granola. We. Um, <laughs> this book was on our A level syllabus at college, um, mm. and I think it was our first year. But we had different teachers, didn't we? It was, yeah. Um, same book, possibly even in the same classroom, mm. but in different. Classes, <laughs> we, and it's we interesting. Were like ships in the night. Interesting to think that we probably got a different perspective from the people that were introducing us to those books. Um, yeah. So there's something there's something about reading a book when you're younger that makes it particularly sort of stand out. It, it's kind of literally formative, and it becomes mm. a part of uh, your character, I think. But there's something particularly about those books we read at college. Um, I know we, we'll probably talk about Caroline Duffy and Simon Armitage at some point. And yes, I hope so. Of, yeah. of the novels we read at college, this is one that really stands out. And I was interested coming mm. back to it now. Um, some of the books... Um, I just kind of refresh my memory on. But this one, mm. I really felt like I reread because it felt like uh, a world ago since we first read it. Yeah, I tell you, the, the copy I've got in front of me uh, is the, the the very same one mm. we had at college. Oh, the, uh, it looks so battered. The, the, 
Yeah, it's the Penguin Classics edition mm. uh, with uh, an experiment on a bird in the air pump by Joseph Wright on the cover. It's mm. quite a dreary but kind of sinister and ominous painting of some sort of scientist probably about to do something unspeakable to an animal. Something the creature, uh, the creature would not, would approve, not of. approve. No, uh, there seems to be a heart pickled in a jar mm. and a child covering her face in in shame and horror. Uh, anyway, I digress. Um, but uh, consequently, um, this 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 paperback, which barely still exists, I lent it uh, to my my dear friend Rachel McGladdery a while ago. Mm. She mentioned she'd never read Frankenstein. I said, "Oh, well, you must, you must." Um, and when I knew that recording this episode was coming up, it had been a while, and I said, "Oh, I'm really sorry to bother you, but um, I'd really like to have this copy for the episode." So she came all the way into town mm. uh, and met me at work and gave it to me. I really appreciate that, and it's it's very strange because it's annotated by my 17-year-old daubings, mm. and um, it turns out I wasn't very bright. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, Victor, Victor good now. monster bad. <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, you know, just it's amazing in that sort of almost Adrian Mole way, what I managed to miss. Mm. Paragraphs that really leap out at me now that I'd go completely unremarked, but you get sort of notes like gothic image, <laughs> <laughs> gothic slash horror, and then my favourite. <laughs> uh, uh, I embraced her, me, a dream about Elizabeth. I embraced her as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips. They became vivid with a hue of death. I've, I've underlined death and written foreshadowing? <laughs> question mark. That's very A-level. But it, yeah, but it, it's really charming. And, so, and it brings back a lot of memories. Um, and it, 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 this sounds really wanky, but like when you are a young student, I, I guess you kind of associate with Victor Frankenstein as this kind of, you know, this young man out to discover things only on a, on a very um, superficial level. But I think I was aware that he was um, a bit flawed, but this time coming oh, back get, to it yeah. now, I thought he's a complete dick in all he's sorts awful. of awful. Mm. Yeah. Even later yeah, on d- at the end of the book, uh, when he's oh, trying yeah. to convince I... Walton to go on, and all his men are talking sense to him, like, like, no, go back to you, <laughs> yeah. go back to your sister, go back to Margaret that you're always writing to. <laughs> if you like Margaret so much, why don't you just marry her? <laughs> oh no, sorry, it's Victor that marries his sister. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, at the end when he's you know talking about what a wretch he is in the cabin in Walton's ship, I've got no sympathy for mm. him. He's awful, and it's funny his. I, I, this is it's bringing out the A level student in me. Uh, some of his dialogue uh, seems to it starts to echo the monster. He's all like, "Oh, whoa, mm. wretched and accursed." It's like, yeah, but you brought it all on yourself. Also, you know, even before the whole creation of the monster thing, he goes to university in Ingolstadt in Germany, which is a real place. His family live in Geneva in Switzerland. It's mm. 400 miles away. It's quite a way. It's basically the distance from London to Edinburgh. Not once in six years <laughs> does he go and see them. And I know. It's not that far and in the scheme of things. You know, you could ride from London <laughs> to Edinburgh in a carriage in a couple of days. Like, come on, Victor, go home on your summer holidays. And Elizabeth just continues to dote on him the whole time. Mm. Oh, uh, I feel... It's, it's really quite... It's quite tragic at the end where she... Well, not near the end, where she writes in that letter saying, oh, oh no. maybe you don't actually love me and maybe you're only marrying me out of duress because it's what your, your late mother wanted. And you think, oh, God. I feel so sorry for Elizabeth Clerval 
and Victor's father, mm. they are also good and pure characters, and they do not deserve to be shackled with a dickhead like Victor, bringing such ruin <laughs> no. into their lives. And there's even a bit very early on when he talks about how idyllic his childhood was and basically says that it was sort of heaven itself and couldn't be better. And they are also pure and loving. And it's slightly baffling in a way that he wants to isolate himself from them. Mm. But then I guess that ties into sort of the main theme of the book, which is that desire to conquer death. Mm. And is it because he has such an idyllic childhood uh, that he can't bear the thought of inevitable decay? Which actually reminds me of... um, uh, I've still got the the spectre of Tolkien hanging over me uh, when it comes to sort of allegory <laughs> and uh, um, autobiography. Uh, but there is, um, it's in the introduction to this Penguin Classics edition, and I believe it's also in the in the graphic novel, um, an excerpt from one of Mary's journals. Uh, it's really tragic. I don't know if you read any of the extra material. Um, no, I don't think so. But uh, well, certainly not when recently. her and Percy. Uh, first eloped uh, she had a baby that died mm. um, within days I think uh, and there's this um, really really tragic uh, journal entry dream that my little baby came to life again that it had only been cold and that we rubbed it before the fire and it lived oh god and it oh it's so chilling and, and horrible um and you can't help but wonder if that informed, um, you know, the, the the tone and the themes of the book about thinking that you could, you know, infuse warmth with fire into a dead thing and, and make it live again. Was that shortly well, before I, she wrote Frankenstein? Yeah, I think it was even uh, 1816. Mm. So it would have been later in the year. Uh, oh, God. no, sorry, sorry. It was February, February 1815. Um, not much before in the scheme of things yeah so basically the next summer she was writing Frankenstein Mm. although of course she puts it down to um, a a dream which I absolutely love Mm. again I've got a quote from that here I saw with shut eyes but acute mental vision I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing that he had put together I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half vital motion so cool Uh, and it's interesting that she describes uh, what is it some powerful engine it's like the the hint of technology because Frankenstein's really vague <laughs> yes. when it comes to how Victor puts this creature together. Yeah, which and it's so funny. It's kind of you can see why a lot of filmmakers have taken artistic license and thought, how the heck do we show that? So you can see, yeah, there's such wiggle room. You can see where the kind of iconography that everyone associates with Frankenstein has come from. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I think everybody knows that Victor Frankenstein goes to graveyards, uh, digs up bodies, uh, takes the best parts, and then stitches them together and and animates it by lightning. But then that's kind of that's not the point of the novel, no. really, is it? The, the, the idea is that he plays God, mm. and uh, and again, in terms of sort of reading it now, I mean, I have sort of dipped into it over the years but i guess sort of reading it in preparation for this i i suppose i read it as thoroughly as i did when i was studying it um 
so like you say it's interesting to have sort of fresh perspectives on certain things um and i guess you know to a large extent you're probably guided um by your tutors and things aren't mm. you uh, and I wonder if, if if we differ in any respects because we were being taught the same text by by different people. But um, well, I remember. So I, I, sorry, go on. Uh, well, just that um, I get you know the the, the 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 book's full title is Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. So not to diminish that element of it, but we we very much studied it from the angle of you know this guy plays God, but ultimately crashes and burns. Um, which yeah that's that's what the book's about but that i guess that was the lens through which i viewed it but reading it this time i was kind of more um i suppose that the monster is is a much more not just sympathetic but interesting character than victor so i guess i was all about the monster uh this time round but also i kind of viewed it as kind of the the living beings relationship with its creator and like is there a god and where do we come from and i, I suppose i'm more interested in, in the sort of the question at the heart of it that are people inherently evil and in some respects I've got some I've got a quote uh, bookmarked actually that I'll read later um it it really reminded me of the book thief in that respect mm. you get this creature that isn't human observing humanity and not understanding how it can be capable of Ooh, such incredible yeah. beauty and such dreadful cruelty simultaneously and I very much gravitated to those elements in it this time round I, I don't know about you that's really interesting parallel I'd not thought about that but I like that. Um, and I'd not got as deep in reading it about thinking about the creation's relationship to creator as being a kind of parallel for humankind and God. That's a fascinating. Yeah, thought. I mean, you That's can really read the creature as Adam, can't you? Mm. And there's quite a lot of references to Adam in Paradise Lost. Uh, yes, yes. I think it, those books that the monster fortuitously picks up all happen to be quite... Um, <laughs> quite key to the monster situation yeah and it's almost like they were mary shelley's favorite texts (laughs) (laughs) much like if she had a kind of geographical shopping list of locations she had to visit in the book (laughs) or if percy was persuading her to turn her short story into a novel and said oh maybe they could go to england and (laughs) scotland and ireland (laughs) uh the quote i think uh Oh, here we go. This is fantastic. Funnily enough, I think it's, I think he's read Paradise Lost by this point, uh, and he's reading the history of of the Greeks and the Romans and uh, the decline of mighty empire of chivalry, Christianity, and kings. Uh, and he says, "These wonderful narrations inspired me with strange feelings. Was man indeed at once so powerful, so virtuous and magnificent, yet so vicious and base? He appeared at one time a mere scion of the evil principle, and yet." At another, as all that can be conceived as noble and godlike. To be a great and virtuous man appeared to be the highest honour that can befall a sensitive being. To be base and vicious, as so many on record have been, appeared the lowest degeneration. A condition more abject than that of the blind mole or harmless worm. For a long time I could not conceive how one man could go forth to murder his fellow, or even why there were laws and governments. But when I heard details of vice and bloodshed, my wonder ceased, and I turned away with disgust and loathing. It's interesting that because the creature is the only one of his kind, he kind of looks at the whole of humankind as though we are one being as well. And that's interesting, Mm. kind of not being able to reconcile the differences across different people. 
but from yeah. a kind of um you know a natural consciousness point of view we, we've talked about a bit before on the boneland podcast i think it was the creature almost sees man as kind of you know a god himself looking at creatures in a petri dish where it looks like one creature mm. but it might be a whole ecosystem of different bacteria and yeah kind of links us as as one and sees us as a part of the world and a kind of extended being and i really like that funnily enough it reminds me of uh Yo, how long are we in? About 20 minutes. Not not a record, but it's pretty good going. Uh, there's a line in Doctor <laughs> Who in, um, uh, I think it's The Forest of the Dead, the second part of Silence in the Library, mm. um, where the one who gets trapped in the system, she says uh, something along the lines of, I, I see perfectly, I see with perfect perfect objectivity because I am alone mm. and unloved. Oh, yes. And that's the, the other thing with the creature, just the sort of dreadful miserable isolation and it's so tragic the thing with with the family oh when he's, the sort of, he's dropping on them and yeah and they call him the good spirit and oh. uh and then when he says uh da, 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 the gentle words of agatha and the animated smiles of the charming arabian were not for me the mild exhortations of the old man and the lively conversation with the loved felix were not for me miserable unhappy wretch oh. It's so heartbreaking, that bit. It was almost painful to relive it because out of the whole book, the bit that most grabbed me when I first read it when we were 16, 17 was part two when it becomes the creature's tale and especially the bit with the cottagers and you are so desperate (coughs) for them to accept him and, you know, you, you want to think... I was almost screaming at the book, no, no, like, just speak to the old man first and then get away before the children come and build a relationship with him and and don't go all in. And and it's heartbreaking when when you see the entire course of his fate and then Victor and everyone that is related to him's fate unfolds in that one moment and it could have gone either way and the monster could have become a really good, virtuous, sort of happy being. And, oh, it's so sad that, you know the world rejects him and he turns to this and quite an interesting analogy in terms of the way the world rejects outsiders and what often happens to them and the way when people are different and they're marginalized they Mm. kind of get pushed onto these darker paths and that's a pattern of behavior we see throughout history and we talk about the creature as an anti-hero but i mean he he does cross a line yeah murdering what's the boy called is it william William, yeah uh uh and then obviously elizabeth and and henry um it out of you know just just cold-blooded spite um and yet he's he's a brilliant anti-hero uh in in the sense that he's so well realized and you really associate with him and you think yeah if, if i were in his position i i would despise humanity mm. uh, and in a strange way it reminded me of a concept that you and i often talk about it's something that we call humanity from a distance yes. uh, and the idea if you watch like a party from far off and you hear lights and laughter and the chinking of glasses or maybe a firework display and it seems so wholesome and you want to be a part of it and you feel this real benevolence toward uh you know your fellow humans but often when you're in the throng of a big party it's quite unpleasant and people aren't <laughs> very nice and I felt that rereading the bit when he's kind of listening in 
on the cottages, marveling at how wonderful they are with their poems and their music and their and their food, um, and yet knowing what's going to happen. And you you get the impression it's that thing when you don't really know somebody and you only observe them from a distance, almost like a kind of celebrity that you hero worship. Um, and you don't get to see the flawed side of their character. Um, or you don't often get to see the flawed side of their character. And then you get the impression when they meet them that Felix might actually be a bit of a, a prat. Um, and okay, his backstory is kind of yeah. virtuous. Um but the way he treats the monster, and when, especially when um, the monster goes back to the cottage, um, and Felix comes along and he's saying, "Oh my, we can't have the return here," he's you sort of see yes. a different side to him, um, and it makes you think how much of a person's identity is perception by the person watching them. So true, yeah. And then I guess you can throw that question out to the whole book as well, because. How much of what we're seeing in the absolute core narrative is what really happens? Because there are several stories within stories in this book. <laughs> well, and by, yeah. the, by the time you get to the cottagers, you've got the story of the cottagers being told by the creature to Victor, to, Victor. <laughs> to Walton, to Walton's sister. In so a that, letter, narrative, yeah. that narrative is five, <laughs> five times removed from the version we actually see. So how much of those... How much of those identities are real? And I, I kind of wonder if that's a deliberate technique to almost put the version of events at a distance. So when you were saying mm. before that the actual details of the creature's creation are quite murky, I almost wonder if she's deliberately kind of put it at a distance so that anything that seems incredulous, you could say, oh, well, maybe something's got a bit lost in the telling. But, you know, that's that's the kind of story. Yeah, perhaps Victor baffled uh, Walton with a lot of techno babble that mm. he didn't understand, so he just transcribed yes. it as the instruments of life. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, and and yeah, it's sort of the ultimate unliable narration. Uh, but um, so I guess we should talk about the letters. Mm. <laughs> That's often, in fact, we joked about it in the last episode, didn't we? That's um, the letters are sort of notorious with this book for anyone listening to this who hadn't who hasn't read the book which is entirely possible because it's the kind of thing like we said it can't really in 2022 you can't spoil frankenstein everybody (laughs) kind of knows the story even if it's a a very different version of the story um and even that was i think i don't know when i guess we'll talk about adaptations later i've no idea when i saw um the universal frankenstein film uh but did you know, we watch it in college have, well, we might have done i can't remember but I, but I was very young or even you know seen clips of it everybody has that idea of frankenstein in their heads mm. so even reading it for the first time you know it's about a in inverted commas mad scientist who who creates a monster so when you start reading the book uh <laughs> and, and you get uh you get Uh, Letter 1. To Mrs. Savile, England. You will rejoice to hear that no disaster has accompanied the commencement of an enterprise which you have regarded with such evil forebodings. I arrived here yesterday, and my first task is to assure my dear sister of my welfare and increasing confidence in the success of my undertaking. And you think, what the hell's this? (laughs) And as a teenager, those letters just seemed interminable. Uh, And in fact, my, my brother... Uh, went to uni and I think he did Frankenstein at uni oh. and he hates it. Really? He thinks it's really boring. <laughs> yeah. Did he get past uh, the letters? I, 
Well, he must have read the whole thing in class, but um, I think he never got over the letters. That might be a, an interesting thing to say. But again, I guess not just rereading it uh, with the benefits of old age, but rereading it kind of slightly more analytically for this. I kind of really put myself or tried to put myself in the mindset of someone who is reading this book for the first time when there were no adaptations of mm. it. Even though I, I believe quite soon after it was written, there was a stage play. Oh, I wouldn't wow. have no idea what that would have been like. But um, Presumably not the one the... with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller, because they would have been <laughs> in their infancy then. I'm not I'm not too sure on their birth dates uh, and the timelines. They acted here, it out but, uh... in utero. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you see that play, by the way? No, I really wish I had. Yeah, did you... me too. No, I know they screened uh, it in some cinemas. I've, I, yeah. I don't see if you could buy it, but um, uh, but I, you know, I thought it's very interesting now. Sort of every, certainly every Netflix special uh, starts with something really dramatic, <laughs> either like a flashback where someone's murdering someone, and then you flash back to current day where they're keeping it a secret. Or it flashes to the end of the story where two characters have got guns to each other's heads and then you flash back to present day where they're friends and you think, oh, how does it get there? Because our attention spans are so short and there's so much on offer that, you know, you really have to grab people. They, they call them coal openings, don't they? The first five or ten minutes of a TV series these days. I've, but for those who have heard it, I'm getting flashbacks to the wild swimming episode of the Alan Partridge from the Oast House podcast. Here. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only podcast that's better than a book at breakfast. <laughs> Maybe we could get Alan on one day to talk about his favourite breakfasts. <laughs> yeah, that could be a lengthy I episode. Appro- I don't think he'd approve of any of our breakfasts. No, no, there's he'd, no. He'd look at British bangers on them. <laughs> He'd look at our breakfast choices and think they know which way to vote in a general election. <laughs> and not the way he would agree with. <laughs> not the way he would agree with. Another reason to say, but yeah, they talk about the creature's vegetarianism. Apparently, uh, Mary and Percy Bysshe Shelley were vegetarians uh, oh. and, you know, quite radical and moved in circles with anarchists and revolutionaries. Um, I imagine them like so, a, a, a Joe Grant and uh, Clifford Jones of their day. Yeah. It, actually, is it Clifford Jones? Have I got that right? I think so, yeah. yeah Professor Jones, uh, anyway. Yeah. Th- for anyone, the Green th- Death. <laughs> th- for anyone that doesn't know what we're referring to, that is, of course, an episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, the letters but- at the start of the book, I must admit, when we first started it, I rather embarrassingly thought it was a bit like when you went to see a film as a kid and before the main animation, they'd show a little short cartoon as a kind of introduction so you didn't get too bored and you see. <laughs> so I thought she'd written some like introductory stories that were nothing to do with the actual narrative. And I thought, oh, why are we bothering reading these? Why don't we skip to the actual story? And it was only getting to the last one. I was like, oh, hang on. Who's this? Oh, it's, it's Victor Frankenstein. Oh, right. Oh, it was relevant. It was bloody relevant. Mm, bloody relevant. Um yeah, and you wouldn't be totally wrong to, to assume that because the the edition we were reading, the what I've got in my hand, uh, at the at the back it contains uh, Byron's fragment from the same holiday and Polidori's oh. The Vampire. Um, oh, wow! But yeah, I I just thought of them as baffling. But um, but I just get back to what I was saying about getting into that mindset of knowing nothing about the novel, just sitting down to read Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, uh, and you get this character who's journeying uh we assume oh yeah there it says um to lands never before visited and may tread a land never bef- never before imprinted by the foot of man 
So you'd probably assume, because we're coming at it knowing who Victor Frankenstein is, knowing what the creature is, but if you're reading for the first time, you would think that um, that Walton is the mm. titular modern Prometheus. Uh, and you'd be kind of settling into that. And then, of course, I think, and don't get me wrong, she does go on, uh, but we'll come to that later. Then I believe it's in, at least in the third letter, yeah. they catch a sight of, of the creature, this kind of monstrously uh, huge man, uh, you know, tearing through the snow uh, on, a, on a sledge pulled by dogs. And so I suppose you would the think, snow <laughs> on a one-horse yeah, open sleigh. Well, listen, listen. He he's at the North Pole at the end, and he goes <laughs> off. He says to conduct a funeral pyre and kill himself. Mm. But how do you know that he didn't become Father Christmas? You, you can't you can't prove that. There's a um, sequel I'd love to see. Yeah. So for our December book, we'll be doing Frankenstein Christmas. <laughs> uh, we'll have to write it very quickly before yeah. now and then. Um, but then, of course, he they find. Victor uh, adrift. Well, he's not exactly adrift, is he? He's kind of made a raft and swam out to find them. But mm. even the letters which I've kind of mocked over the years, del- you know, delicately mocked and, and said they're a bit boring. It, you know, there, there is that famous quote, isn't there? Where is it? There is something at work in my soul that I do not understand, doesn't it? But mm. even towards the end, you get the um, uh, when he's talking to Victor, I see his thin hand raised in animation while the liniments of his face are irradiated by the soul within. Strange and harrowing must his story be. Frightful the storm which embraced the gallant vessel on its course and wrecked it thus. <laughs> and I love how there's a dash and then thus exclamation mark. Um, but I, again, this is slightly lofty, but I've always said that Dracula uh, could be sort of considered the original found footage horror. I mean, it's not found footage, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's documents, you know, it's like found documents sort of collated um, to tell this story. And Frankenstein slightly less so because it has much more of a kind of linear narrative. But you're right. It's every... Funny that we talked about Jingle Hall last month and how it's like a tale within a tale within a tale and each character introduces the next character and her mm. story. And like you say, you get uh, Walton writing to... Margaret, it is Margaret, isn't it? I think it's Margaret. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he's Pe- a better people brother. In... Well, than Victor. Yes. <laughs> and, and people in those days really liked their sisters as well. Seemingly, <laughs> they really. Did. I think yeah. it's worth pointing out though that Victor and Elizabeth aren't actually blood relations. No, true. But but what I find really weird, it's it's that ultimate taboo that she basically is his sister because they were raised together from children. Was it? <laughs> uh, um, it's like uh, Disco 2000. Our mother said we could be sister and brother. <laughs> um, hang on, I sang that to the tune of Common People. <laughs> yes, totally, my brain's yeah. gone. I've forgotten. Yeah. Oh, we were born within an hour of each other. Our mother said, said we could be sister, sister and brother. And brother. Your, Your name's name Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, well, that's, yeah, it will be on her wedding night. She wasn't Elizabeth Frankenstein for very long, it must be said. No, she wasn't because Victor stupidly says... I'll tell you all about what I've done the day after our <laughs> wedding when the creature yeah. has made this big threat. I mean, what an idiot. And and the reason he says that is for confidentiality, like he thinks she's going to shop him or possibly even worse, refuse to marry him because of what of an arsehole he's been. I mean, surely you should be really honest about any misgivings or indiscretions <laughs> before you get married and give your potential spouse the opportunity to say, no, that's a, a bit weird, that... 
affair slash gambling problems slash sewing together the body parts of corpses <laughs> to reanimate a dead body into a sort of living pale skin zombie is not for me and I am but, going to get out of this marriage. Look, we all have our flaws. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. Yeah. I, I like to put uh, brown sauce on a shepherd's pie, you know, so I, I, I've been to dark places Disgusting. myself. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... So despite the fact that the letters to a modern a modern reader do seem quite slow and it you know even when we finally get to Victor's story you think okay here we go here's the <laughs> bit where he makes a monster I am by birth a Genovese and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic you think you try my patience here Victor um, It's a bit like reading Bruce Springsteen's biography which we probably oh, really? won't, we probably won't cover at any point but you you like it's it's very detailed about his childhood growing up in fifties America, which he puts across in a way that you know Bill Bryson would do it, and you could really relate to it. But Springsteen isn't a natural novel writer, and you're just like, <laughs> get to the music. Maybe he did some really dreadful things in adulthood, so he's deliberately kind of <laughs> yes. set to bore everyone off in the early yeah. chapters, so they never get to the the, the dreadful <laughs> truths within. It worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever made um, it past chapter eight. Sorry, Bruce. But despite the fact that it, it's slow to start and it is kind of meandering, um, it, it's so real and you believe yeah. absolutely. And even, you know, uh, it, with something that's kind of archaic now, um, you absolutely believe in Walton and you believe that he's found this guy. And again, the fact that it's all at a remove through, told through letters which are transcribed from a conversation by a, a fevered man on the brink of death. You know, it all seems so plausible that when you get to the, you know, the student of unhallowed hearts section, you absolutely accept it. And I guess, despite the fact I said the short story began with the dreary night in November, I think actually, if it had begun like that, I think you'd be slightly more incredulous. Yeah, I think you would. I think it would seem like more of a, a sort of fantasy or sci-fi book. Um, and arguably... It does have elements of science fiction. I think I read somewhere that it was considered the first science fiction book, as well as being the yes, first. Yes, I've, I've gothic... always thought so. Yeah. Did it call it a gothic horror? Would um... well, no. Gothic... The, the t- <laughs> well, <laughs> you raise an interesting point because, mm. like, like many terms, uh, like Quakers, for example, mm. um, it began as an insult. Uh, oh, right. just, but okay. then it became synonymous and became the accepted word and there's all this debate about what makes a horror film a horror film there's the, you know there's that great thing within the industry that when when a horror film wins an award something like the silence of the lambs people say oh well it's not really a horror film it's a thriller because something as base <laughs> uh uh you know and and crass and tacky as horror they're not proper films they can't win awards so it kind of um i think it actually came from paperbacks but i could be wrong sort of like you know, paperbacks being made into to it was it was a derisory term that critics used horror flicks. Like I think because they were horrible, Ooh, you know, like a penny dreadful. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, so it, that just became so. Frankenstein certainly wouldn't have been called a gothic horror. I mean, it is. It's um, but um, yeah, not at that time. I guess. I mean, it's very romantic. Yeah, um, it is, and I think. That's an element of the book that is quite surprising when you first read it. I mean, the mm. the descriptions of sublime nature, especially yeah. the part where he returns to Geneva after he's kind of oh. fled from his creation. There are several chapters of just basking in he's... boats on the lakes and climbing mountains. And it, it's basically, 
I mean, they're, they're basically like very, very beautiful, vivid descriptions of real landscapes. Mm. Um, and But they don't drag, I would say, because it's no. such a blessed relief from oh, all the incredible. misery. Oh, they're incredible. Yeah, yeah. But it, it is incredibly romantic, and it's almost like she's painting with words. I mean, mm. it, Absolutely, for all yeah. its, you know, for all its pacing seeming at odds with modern novels, it is a beautifully written book, and that really oh, jumped out at me this gorgeous. time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think right from, even though I said the letters are slow, they're still beautifully written. So for right from the from the get-go, it's um, it's a gorgeous book. Um, but I think when it gets to volume two and we get the monster's voice, that's when it becomes sort of, you know, it transcends and becomes spectacular. Uh, but talking of splitting things into volumes, I think it's time for a tea break. <laughs> so do I. So we're back with tea, but in a book at breakfast first. Oh, we're all about book at breakfast firsts. Is um, it, I think this is the first episode where we've not drank just normal tea. We're drinking green tea mm. for very for a very very specific reason. Apparently, uh, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley were were big drinkers of tea, um, but then at some point they began boycotting the sugar industry. Um, oh presumably because of its connections to the the slave trade, which made me think of, of Doctor Who. What if I could control people's taste buds? What if nobody wanted sugar in their tea? Anyway, <laughs> let's not uh, let's not bang on about Doctor Who in a podcast that's supposed to be about Frankenstein. I think we've done that enough. I think we should leave off that, for today. I, I, yeah, I, I, can't, I, I, pro- I promise our listeners this is the last time we'll mention Doctor Who in this episode. <laughs> I can't even think of what we'd, what we'd talk about. Mm. Um, but yeah, so because they'd given up sugar, um, they drank green tea instead. Um, oh, and there's even there's a, there's a website um, I think it's called Literary Teas and they do a Mary Shelley tea blend and oh. it's a green tea but it's got sort of like uh, chocolate and funnily enough blueberry uh, in um, we were talking about blueberries before because of yeah. the, the monsters diet of, of berries and I almost thought about importing some but they're they're a US company so the shipping would have been stupid and, and also probably... I th- the Shelleys probably wouldn't have agreed with the uh, global transit of shipping a box of tea no. transatlantically. No, they, they I don't think it would be good for the done. environment. Um, and similarly, I um, when I was thinking about the breakfast, I thought, well, sh- I believe there's a cereal called Frankenberry, uh, which surely would be the ultimate breakfast to have with Frankenstein. Um, but I looked on, e- it's American, I looked on eBay uh, and it was five pounds for a box of uh, Frankenberries, um, but the shipping was twenty pounds, uh, <laughs> and the expiry date was uh, August. <laughs> uh, and also, it has gelatine marshmallows in, so oh. it was um, it wasn't meant to be on any level. But I thought that was quite funny that someone's selling a twenty-five quid box of out-of-date cereal on eBay. It's interesting talking about the the Shelleys boycotting sugar, and obviously we don't have sugar in our tea, obviously because we've waxed lyrical about George, it before. George but, Orwell told us not to. Yeah, but um, I went to an exhibition about hot drinks at Manchester Art Gallery last week. Oh wow! And they were talking about how in some places the tea industry is still relatively unethical, and I thought. It's a difficult yeah. fundamental question because tea is such a part of my everyday life and something I would really struggle to give up. Mm. Um, but you get posed with these things and you, you think about trying to be a good human being and do the right things and then think how many little contradictions and transgressions there are in our everyday lives. Um, 
So I'm not saying I'm going to give up tea because no, well, no, I, and you I'm don't not, have to but, give up you know, tea. It, it certainly a, gave me pause for thoughts. Well, it's a subject that's very close to my heart because I work uh, in a shop that sells mm. fair trade teas. <laughs> um, in fact, there's there's a brand called Clipper who made the organic fair trade green tea we're drinking today. Mm. Um and they sent me, me personally, uh, they sent us, but I, I got to keep it, um, a little free tea towel. And it's Aww. lovely. It's a part of tea. And it says, you and me and a lovely cup of tea. Oh. Uh, and um, I'm going to put it in the background of the promotional image for this episode, actually. Oh, lovely. The, Sh- the Shelleys would approve. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, uh, this is... Oh, here's a peek behind the curtain. Uh, see, next month's episode, we recorded quite a long way <laughs> in advance. And we speculated that the book we were talking about was probably um, the most adapted book there had ever been. Um, but actually, I looked it up and I'm mm. fairly certain that actually Dracula is the most adapted book there's ever been when you think about all the various iterations. But I reckon Frankenstein is pretty close behind. So uh, if we don't start talking about adaptations now, um, we'll probably never, ever finish. We'll be here longer than Walton's letters. <laughs> I don't think that's physically possible <laughs> or chronologically possible. Um, so I, oh, you put me in a difficult position here. Um, there was an episode of a cult science, fi- a British science fiction show <laughs> that I saw as a child. The name of it escapes me. Um, it was called the the episode was called the chase. The serial was called the chase, and the, uh, there was one uh, bit where they went to a, a sort of haunted house in space, and all yes. the monsters in it were like the Universal Dracula and the Universal Frankenstein's monster. Um, and that would probably have been my first on-screen representation of Frankenstein's monster. Um, so I don't know when I saw the original Universal film, or even if. I'd seen it because it's so iconic and everybody's in fact oh god you know I give in I give in you'll have to just um set up some kind of um reparation system or something but I think possibly the first the the first clip of uh the universal Frankenstein I ever saw was in the Paul McGann TV movie and oh yes as as sylvester mccoy is regenerating into paul mcgann on the slab in the mortuary uh the mortuary attendant is watching frankenstein on tv and the regeneration is interspersed with with the scenes of the creature coming to life and his hand twitching and so yeah that was the first time i ever saw that scene it was it was in doctor who now that you've mentioned um well, I think it's fine to mention the name Doctor Who now because you were dancing <laughs> around it nicely saying um, about watching the the chase and I knew exactly what you yes. meant. I, I knew that you didn't mean the Bradley Walsh version of the ITV <laughs> quiz show. But then when you said regeneration, Sylvester McCoy and Paul McGann, we could really only <laughs> kind of go so far without saying the D word again. So we're going to have to go back on our promise, listeners. I am <laughs> sorry about that. The the Doctor Who by Stealth podcast is returning, and actually, there might be quite a lot of Doctor Who talk in this next bit. But I guess we're going to have to go a little <laughs> bit further back in time before even the the start of Doctor. I think to talk about the earliest adaptation of Frankenstein. What year mm. was it? Oh, is it, is it thirty-one or thirty-four? Oh wow! Oh, I really should know that. Mm. Early thirties, um, and it's. A wonderful film. 
But what do you actually think of it? I don't know if I've seen it properly. Um, oh, wow. I've definitely seen bits of it, and I've definitely seen bits of Bride of Frankenstein. I remember you showing me a part of Bride of Frankenstein, but I don't know if I've seen them all the way through. I think we watched part of the original Universal Frankenstein in our English class at college. Right. Oh, but, but I, we were in different classes. So that's yeah. why when, when I said I don't remember watching it at college, but we weren't in the same class. I have to keep remembering It's probably it, so, yeah. because my, my teacher had got it out from the video library, so yours didn't have it. But I'm probably, sure we, 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 we watched maybe about half an hour of it, but I don't think I've seen the whole film. But it's incredible how you know, the idea of Frankenstein that's probably much more famous than the novel all comes from that movie. That mm. the, the, the mad scientist, who bafflingly in the film is called um, Henry Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> they thought was Victor was too scary. Issue? Well, no, because his dad in it is called uh, Victor. It's really confusing. Oh. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, a mad scientist called Henry Frankenstein who has uh, a, sidek- a hunchback sidekick called Igor who goes where, to where um, did he come from <laughs> but again like we, we discussed there wasn't um any real description in the novel of how he obtained these no these these, these body parts and i suppose i guess the writers would have been thinking about sort of Birkin hair and the idea of like scientists yeah. paying um i don't want to say criminals but you know paying people to obtain bodies for them in a not quite uh, not entirely legal manner uh, so i guess that's where igor comes from isn't it he's a sort of birkin hair type character um, it's interesting as well because and there's the classic i, think I feel like we watched it together because i think i remember that the house i was living in at the time we certainly watched one scene together and it's where um uh, igor goes into oh, the yes. it's like a science lab and he's trying to steal a brain for the creature and there are two jars and one of them is labeled normal brain <laughs> and the other is labeled criminal brain. brain oh is it criminal brain <laughs> yeah did we watch the whole film together actually because i do remember that i'm sure we did uh. and uh because at the time i was it's so weird and disjointed because again it's sort of set sort of at least ostensibly in ingolstadt uh that amazing tower that uh henry's laboratory is in um <laughs> but uh and then i guess he goes back yeah he's back at the family home and elizabeth's there uh and it's really odd because it's very kind of generic european um and there's like a, a village square with a sort of umpar band and everyone's <laughs> wearing everyone's wearing lederhosen and yet uh henry frankenstein's dad victor has this really clipped uh, bbc english accent and there's a bit where all all the lederhosen villagers are dancing and he goes out to the balcony and says more beer for everyone and they all burst into a, applause but then they have a scene which you know it's but the most famous scene in, no of course the most famous scene in the film is the it's alive but um the the infamous scene i should say in the film that got that was cut on on its release where where the creature throws the girl into the water I don't know if you remember that scene. Yeah, I do remember. She's. That. It's really tragic because I think you know for for all the differences to the to the the text, I think Karloff plays that creature so well yeah. with the, such kind of sort of gentleness and melancholy and and how he's kind of just afraid all the time, sort of recoiling from fire and confused. And then he meets this little girl and he's and he has this sort of childlike delight and she's throwing is it lilies or daisies or whatever into the yeah. river and he thinks he it's a game, so he throws her into the river and she <laughs> drowns. Um and it was only 
on this re you know because basically pretty much everything in the film is made up um uh but it was only on this reread i realized there is of course the scene in in the novel where he tries to rescue a rustic's child from drowning yeah. and then the guy shoots him uh yes. but it's, it's quite dark because the implication is that the guy was actually trying to kill the girl that, that the creature rescued and that incident is what sets him off isn't it isn't it on um yeah you know the pain of being shot when he was only trying to do a good deed and that's when he just goes full-on you know humanity is my enemy and i'm going to e- evil henceforth became my good i can't remember if that's the quote from frankenstein or paradise lost because they're quite similar but you know <laughs> uh, but anyway but that scene in the film where karloff's monster throws the little girl into the river then the, the sort of yokel type he's wearing like a straw wide-brimmed hat and he has like a what like a like a thing of wheat in it in his mouth and he's like oh that that there monster gone don't kill my little girl and i was like what country is this setting it's so sort of bad and in, in how disjointed it is and yet you feel like well it takes place in movie land mm. and it takes it's place so, in hollywood it, it takes place in hollywood yeah it's such you know it is the ultimate sort of hollywood monster film and i think for all its differences from the book it, it's it has a real purity to it and there's something quite lovely about yeah. it although there was a kind of anti-universal monster feeling instilled in me at college by um our english teacher who was really really lovely actually a woman called pat who was also you, you she was your media studies teacher yeah she was both, yeah. Uh, she was uh, you know she introduced me to so much it was I have so much to thank her for. She was wonderful. But there was a um, a kind of a lot of eye rolling about, oh, the silly film with, with, with you know, with the bolts and the, and the stitches. And so there was this kind of discipline uh, when reading the book for the first time to try and imagine the monster as not looking like Boris Karloff. It's hard. I, I mean, when I was reading this book, I found an article online about different images of the monster or the creature. Mm. And it's interesting how wildly different a lot of interpretations are, but mm. I kind of struggled to picture what it would actually look like. And certainly when we were younger, when we read it at college, I remember saying to you, if it had been this society where people have rejected him, would he would he just have looked kind of deformed? Um, and would that have been yeah, accepted sort of like, these like, days? Like the elephant man or, or Yeah, like yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's interesting in, in the graphic novel edition we talked about, the creature is sort of constantly in shade. He's mm. sort of massive. And I think there are some nuts and bolts and some stitches, but you very rarely properly see him, which is quite an impressive feat for a graphic novel yeah. to not show, exa- not exactly the main character, but, you know, the main anti-hero. But, um, but I didn't watch um, The Bride of Frankenstein for years because I was kind of, I knew that there were a, a million sequels, like, you know, Son of Frankenstein and frankenstein's hawaiian holiday and frankenstein and dracula go to the drive-in some of these are real films and some of them aren't um, <laughs> i hope that frankenstein's um, hawaiian holiday is although i suspect it's not no but main character's name hawaiian holiday uh, was a proposed sequel for oh. a, a, an actual film and it's something that is reputedly still in the works even though it's been about 30 years oh right okay it's one of my favourite films of all time. I don't know if you can guess. Beetlejuice? Yes. Oh. Beetlejuice is Hawaiian holiday. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope they never make it. Um, <laughs> although I'm kind of morbidly curious. Um, but yeah, a part of me just thought, you can't you can't make a sequel to Frankenstein. And I thought, you know, admittedly, um, the book bears very... Sorry, the original film bears very little resemblance to the book. Uh, but, you know, it is telling that story 
and the monster dies at the end and i thought and there is no sequel to frankenstein you can take as many artistic licenses as you want with adapting the actual text but then to start from scratch i was you know i was really against it as a concept despite how iconic uh, elsa lancaster was as the bride of frankenstein so i didn't watch it till i was about 26 Mm. and i absolutely loved it i think it's way better than the original um and i think it's actually a much more faithful adaptation of frankenstein than frankenstein is it's interesting um talking about the female creature and i i don't remember much about bride of frankenstein so i'm gonna go off on one and talk about something else um, hang on but before you do i just want to the, the beginning is so funny because it's it begins on the shores of lake geneva like zooms in to Vi- villa diodati we were, mm. i'm not sure how to pronounce that um uh, and it's got uh, Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley and Byron and Polidori and who else was there? I can't remember. Um, oh, Jane Claremont, I, I would imagine. Uh, and, uh, and and it's like Frankenstein, the movie, has just finished. And Byron's <laughs> like, oh, my dear Shelley, that was a terrifying story. Um, uh, and, she, and she turns to the camera and says, but wait, there's more. <laughs> like, that is so cheesy, but also so sort of like the audacity of it. Like we're not just going to make up a sequel to a classic <laughs> novel. We're going to dramatize the actual author of the text saying, no, I wrote all this as well. And to me, I, I never twigged at the time. I only read this very recently. The actress who plays Mary Shelley in the opening scene is Elsa Lancaster. She's really never, never, never twigged oh, that. Whoa. Um, That's cool. But yeah, but then the story that follows is basically... Yeah, okay, so again, unlike the the novel where the creature sails off to the far north to construct a funeral pyre, in the in the film he's famously, you know, burned alive by an angry mob. Um but then Bride of Frankenstein, after Mary Shelley saying there's more, begins with him you know, crashing out of the burning wreckage, having survived. <laughs> right, they changed his makeup a bit to make him look burned, but it's not actually that noticeable. But um, but yeah, the, the, there's some weird stuff with homunculi and 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 uh, some interesting sort of queer coded stuff. Actually, I think it's got a bit of a LBGTQ plus following mm. that film, which I think is ace. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, it's basically the whole section of the novel about the, the creature coming to Victor and asking him to make him a mate. And in that respect, it, it's it's kind of it feels more like the novel except that it's not uh, set on the orkney isles um <laughs> which is a, a strange detail of the book uh and we were saying before i think both of us are completely forgotten that victor <laughs> c- comes to britain in the book and goes on his holidays you know goes to visit uh, him and clothal's mate and it kind of reminded me of that scene in Peep Show when Sophie's giving birth and Mark wanders to KFC. And it's kind of like you imagine the monster <laughs> following him. Kind pace. Of, yeah, <laughs> yes. You imagine the monster following him, thinking, "Right, so you've come to England to research this project I've asked you to do. So when are you going to get to it? It's been about eleven months now, and you seem to have just <laughs> been going to see your friends in the Lake District. But then he ends up in the Orkney Isles uh, to begin work in earnest." Uh, on making the female creature. And it struck me as an odd choice for the location because he he pointedly goes to an island where it says there's something like five inhabitants. So I thought, where's he getting the body parts from? Because there can't be that many people buried there. (laughs) And there certainly can't be that many people freshly buried there. So it's one of the perhaps little inconsistencies of the novel that maybe we shouldn't question too much. And maybe a gift of being a narrative within a narrative within a narrative. 
Yeah. Well, I, I have a little headcanon bit to explain that, which is that mm. the reason the island has got a population of five is that there was a, ve- a very recent, let's say, oh. uh, outbreak of plague or typhoid or something. Right. Uh, and so they're, they're, everyone's dead, but there are lots of relatively fresh graves. Right. Okay. Thank you, Chris Shelley. No problem. But wait, there's more. <laughs> anyone could be mary shelley um but yeah i don't remember watching either of the universal films at college but we did watch um the um the kenneth branner one from about 93 yes we did yeah and i think because they was it 92 they made the um bram stoker's dracula with gary oldman mm. and uh, anthony hopkins it was like, oh well, now we've got to do frankenstein too and i remember <laughs> being so excited by the the poster it was just the creature covered in yeah. a shroud being struck by lightning. And it said, like, be afraid. It wasn't that, because that's the fly. Be warned. <laughs> be very warned. I'm not sure what they were telling us to be, but it was so cool. And I, But I was, you know, God, what would I have been, like six or something? Uh, six or seven. And yeah. my, I remember my dad going to see it at the cinema, and I was sort of not begging him but like you've got to tell me every give me a blow by blow account funnily <laughs> enough like uh like a, a letter to a sister from somebody who heard the story um and he was telling me how sad it was and he said oh the 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 monster calls frankenstein father and yeah. and as a child i remember thinking oh that's strange that you, you feel sorry for the monster bloody snowflakes um but uh I, but back to sort of reading it at college the the way they made robert de niro look as the monster in that film was i guess how i was trying to imagine him when i first read the book as something a bit more realistic and grotesque but this time round i took unbridled delight as just imagining him as boris karloff with a big square <laughs> head bolts for his neck and green skin because in that we talked about this before in in various things including possibly in some future episodes but um uh sometimes things just become part of the cultural psyche uh even if they're you know like sherlock holmes's uh hat and and pipe or you know what i mean some things aren't in the original but it's fine because yeah. that's what we and you know this book is god nearly what 200 years old yeah just no, over. Hang on, more more than 200 years old and it's kind of it belongs i'm not saying we shouldn't preserve the original text obviously we should but it's kind of become more than just a book now it sort of belongs to everyone and it's it's whatever we want it to be and i feel like you know western society has decreed that frankenstein's monster looks like boris karloff and i'm i'm totally fine with that i think everything all art in a way is a work in progress so when the creator mm. the creator of the um the piece of art, the book, the painting, whatever, not the creator as in Victor. But when the creator kind of signs off on it and says, I'm finished with this, they're essentially handing it over to people to make with it what they will. And in the same way that a band would say a song is for the audience and, you know, it becomes different things to different people and it transforms as they play it live. I think people kind like of grab... Everybody Hurts is a great example. Yeah, of yeah. And in terms of people grabbing hold of you know, any kind of classic text and interpreting it their own way, it kind of, it doesn't have to contradict the original. It can inform it and it can complement it. Not always, you know, but I'm kind of, my mind's straying to films here. We've recently watched the Mm. two Candyman films. um, Yes. Pretty much side by side, maybe a few weeks apart. Although the the Nia da Costa version has 
um, a sort of a thin thread running to the original. It's kind of the classic mm. example of something that takes the original story and builds on it and complements it without Absolutely, kind of yeah. necessarily being created by any of the same people. I know it's got some of the same actors sort of guesting in it, mm, but mm. the actual writers and producers and directors are different. I'm not saying that's always the case. You know, there's some No, but even that, like, that's a great... A- that's a great example because it's a sort of is it a remake is it a soft reboot is it a sequel uh, but even the original Candyman was based on a short story by Clive Barker mm. called Sweets to the Sweet and it was set in Liverpool and then suddenly yeah. it becomes this, this, this film set in Chicago and it's a it, it's a bit like the conversation we were having uh, with Catherine and Lorraine in our uh lord of the rings 11s episode where they said you know when sometimes the composer dies and, and the, the music doesn't belong to them anymore mm. And then again, with a, with a work that's this old, you stray into kind of interesting territory as to exactly what constitutes an adaptation and what's just referencing it. Or because uh, for my money, um, the brain of Morbius uh, from Tom Baker's second season of Doctor yeah. Who uh, is is an outright remake of Frankenstein. You've got <laughs> a, a sort of mad scientist who lives on this planet. That's uh, it's basically uninhabited, isn't it? But there are lots of... Uh, is there a reason for there being so many ships that crash there? It's a long time since I've seen it. I yeah, don't remember. Same. But basically, he kind of, you know, he finds... Uh, he raids the, 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 the wrecks of these crashed spaceships for alien body parts to, to craft this, this perfect creature because he has the brain of Morbius, who is, you know, the greatest time lord that's ever lived, but he can't find a head for him. So it's this kind of creature <laughs> with like a lobster claw for an arm and a brain in a jar. <laughs> I hope it wasn't a criminal brain. <laughs> but I think that's very appropriate because... Um, that was during Doctor Who's seventies Hammer Horror period, where um, they were, you know, well, this is a little bit earlier, but with things like the Demons was referencing Devil Rides Out, and then yeah. another Tom Baker story in the same season was the Pyramids of Mars, which is which is kind of like the Mummy, and so the Brain of Morbius is not so much an adaptation of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, but it's very much um, a, a nod to Hammer Horror's The Curse of Frankenstein. Yeah. Which was, you know, I don't know if it was the first adaptation of the original story since the, because obviously the Universal one had a million sequels. Um, uh, There may, well, I think there were other films, but that was the first successful one, I'd say, the the one that we still remember and still talk about today. And it's interesting because Peter Cushing was their star at the time Mm -hmm. and he was in it as the star as Victor Frankenstein. Uh, And he's he's delightfully evil as Victor Frankenstein. And there's a a really famous scene where after he's viciously murdered someone, uh, you know, he just murders people to get body parts. And then it cuts to him at the table with, I don't know, presumably Elizabeth or whoever. And he says, could you pass the marmalade? And it's become a bit (laughs) of a a thing for what people call cosy horror. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's my kind of horror. Uh, but um but then of course famously in uh, the curse of frankenstein they cast uh, this unknown actor to play the creature because he was so tall and distinguishing looking i didn't uh, realize that this was one of his first roles this he'd done a lot of bit parts mm. but he was fair you know fairly um you know non-notable and then everybody saw him in all this ghoulish makeup as the creature and said who is that um and it was of course christopher lee christopher lee uh, and very very quickly afterwards he was the star of the hammer horror dracula and a household name 
I wonder if uh, there was any rivalry between Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, and if that maybe informed um, Tim Burton when he was making Ed Wood with the sort of the rivalry between Bella Lugosi and <laughs> Boris Karloff. Karloff is not worthy to smell my <laughs> shit! <laughs> I don't know how true that is, but it's a fun story. No, there wasn't. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing were best friends. Oh, oh how lovely. Oh, I'd love um, to see a, a film about that. Oh, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, apparently, they uh, they used to ring each other up and do like just do impressions down the phone to each other. Uh, <laughs> Chris, they wouldn't even say hello. Like Peter Cushing would answer the phone, and Chris Lee would just be doing Daffy Duck down the phone to him and have him in in stitches. Oh, it's hard to imagine really... Christopher Lee with his big, big, deep, booming voice doing Daffy yeah. Duck. <laughs> oh, I think there's a clip of him somewhere. You sort of imitating one of their phone calls. No, they were they were incredibly close. Um, and there's a lovely, I think, if not the last photo of Peter Cushing ever taken, there was a, the last picture of them together when Cushing, because Cushing was a fair bit older than Christopher Lee, I think. Um, but even though, it's, it's a very sad story, actually, because his, and it's why I'm really go, going off on a tangent here, but one of my favourite 70s horrors uh, is um, the Amicus portmanteau horror tales from the crypt yeah um, me too when peter cushing plays arthur grimsdyke yes. sort of a lovely old man who's driven to suicide by his evil neighbors and he plays this, this lonely sort of spinster character is spinster the right word for a man i can't remember I don't yeah th- no widow widower widower yeah it's funny that there isn't really an equivalent of that it's one of those sort of words that's a negative female version i guess it's a bit sexist, male bachelor it? yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly yeah bachelor has all these positive connotations whereas a spinster is a, a wretched thing to be yeah, i mean it's um, like james bond is a bachelor and miss Hathersham is a spinster <laughs> mary wollstonecroft would not approve <laughs> um uh where was i yeah um but that was very close to his own life this this lonely guy who sits you know mourning his dead wife because his 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 beloved wife did die mm. sometime in the 50s or 60s i think uh and he was just incredibly lonely without her uh but he was he was a strict he said he wanted to kill himself because he was so miserable mm. but he was a christian and he thought if i kill myself i'll go to hell and i'll never see her again uh and there's a really sad story about one day he just he ran up and down stairs all day in the hope that he'd give himself a heart attack, but he oh. could plead with St. Peter that it was accidental death. Oh, my word. It's awful. So it, the fact that he and Christopher Lee had this really close friendship makes it it makes it makes even more lovely and poignant mm. that, um, you know, that was probably the one thing he had in his life that brought him joy. And it was uh, Victor Frankenstein and, and the creature. <laughs> How interesting. And Christopher Lee's version of the creature is brilliant in a mm. way. I know it looks corny now and it's kind of quite <coughs> obviously green makeup, but in a way, perhaps the definitive <laughs> version to me of on-screen oh, portrayals. Really? But of course, mm. that was the first, yeah, Hammer was when they started showing blood on screen. Mm. Bright red, <laughs> like primary <laughs> colour paint blood. But still, the scene where he gets shot and he's holding his face, yeah. it was, uh, you know, really grotesque for the time. Yeah, he does look great. And um, and again, now this isn't an adaptation of Frankenstein at all. Uh, but we we went down the Doctor Who rabbit hole, so I'm I'm not coming out now. Last night, I'd I'd, I'd finished reading the book, and I decided to rewatch uh, the Doctor Who episode, The Haunting of Villa Diodati, um, which was surprisingly good. I yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, one of the strongest in that season, I think. And I, I love the fact that um. Uh, they, they even give 
the the Mary Shelley character um, some of her own words as 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 dialogue. Yeah, where she's she's asking Byron to tell a story, and she I can't remember the exact quote. She said one that will uh, that will cool the blood, uh, <laughs> and it's actually it's in her introduction to the you know second or whatever edition of Frankenstein. I thought that was very cool, um, and uh, but yeah, what I really liked about it because Doctor Who is you know. It's science fiction, which, you know, Mary Shelley invented, uh, but it, it's frequently horror as well. It's, you know, hiding behind the sofa. It's a show about monsters. So, you know, you could, this is a bit of a leap, but you could say that Mary Shelley is kind of, if um, if Verity Lambert is, is the mother of Doctor Who, then you could almost say that uh, Mary Shelley is, if not the grandmother, the, the, the sort of the godmother of Doctor Who that, yeah. that created a genre almost for sort of scary things that are rooted in 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 the mystery of science maybe i'm leaping too far there but it felt very right to have uh mary shelley in frankenstein and despite like i say doctor who is often you know that there's a sciencey wincey explanation at the end but there are ghosts in it i don't know if you remember i'd forgotten because mm. there's so much going on with the cybermen and everything that people keep seeing weird things and it's explained yes. by some sciencey thing but graham Bradley Walsh's character keeps seeing this, this this woman and a little girl, and then at the end you find out he's the only one who saw them, and it's never explained. And I thought, oh, that's mm. so cool. Doctor Who never does that. That was Ace. Yeah, I loved that episode. Um, I kind of wish I revisited it before this as well. Um, and I love the idea of Mary Shelley as a, a sort of godmother of Doctor Who because if she did create science fiction. You know, what if that seed was just in her head? What if nobody yeah. else had quite done that and science fiction wasn't created? I mean, I mean, it seems bizarre. You'd, you'd think that somebody would have happened on it. But maybe without Mary Shelley, there would be no Doctor Who, which is... Oh, my God. A devastating That's... thought. But possibly plausible it's impossible mm. to say because it's one of those things like lord of the rings that's had such a massive cultural impact that it, so many things are sort of tangentially inspired by it even if people have never read it but you know lord of the rings is only i mean how many years old did it it was published in 1954 yeah. comparatively modern as, as silly as that sounds but frankenstein was 1818 it's it's been so influential it, it'd be almost in, there'd be so many threads it would be impossible to pick them apart Sorry, we never really did talk about the um, the Robert De Niro, Kenneth Branagh film, did we? No, we didn't. Um, and I, um, I've got quite fond memories of watching that one at college, but I've kind of got yeah, me too. Fond, fond, fonder memories almost because I've been to Geneva um, and the way they used oh, the scenery. Wow. I assume it's actually shot on location in Geneva. The scene with the kite when they're flying yeah. the kite and they're struck by electricity. Yes. So and that sprawling mountain range. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I've never been. I'd, it looks oh, beautiful. I'd love to go back. Maybe we should go. Um, yeah. Because I I often say uh, I, I love trains. I love train travel. And I think the most beautiful ride I ever did in a train was getting the train from Geneva to Bern. And Bern is actually oh. the capital of Switzerland, even though it's nobody's heard of it, and everyone would assume it'd be Geneva. But <laughs> Probably because of the, Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> the train skirts along the shores of the lake, but really high up, so there's a sheer drop next to the train. And you're just looking straight down the rocks into the water across the trees and mountains. And it is incredible. And you can see why such dramatic scenery. 
and such mm. kind of frightening scenery. There is something awe-inspiring, but almost terrifying about the size of the mountains and the jaggedness of the rocks and the sort of deep mysteries of the forests around there. You can see why it would inspire the imagination to create a novel. What what could live up those rocks? What's lurking in those forests? So you could see how the landscape itself might have fed into Shelley's ideas when she was brewing Frankenstein. Yes, and I think it's very sweet that she decided to make Frankenstein uh, Genovese because it's mm. almost like you would think the easy thing to do would just write what you know and have him be English. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's almost like the the surroundings were such an inspiration she had to make them a character in the novel very much so and i guess uh, nature is the kind of unspoken fifth beetle you know the extra character of the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> there, there is so much of it devoted to nature and that's something i really enjoyed this time i i enjoy that kind of um, escapism um of disappearing into nature that literature yes. can afford and um my partner and me went to see an exhibition about the artist Derek Jarman, um, who sadly died of um, he had HIV and he died in the 90s. But in his final days, he went to live in a cottage in Dungeness. And um, oh, wow. he got so much pleasure from tending the garden outside his cottage. And he wrote a book about it called Modern Nature. And that's going to be right. one of my, that's kind of top of the pile. It's going to be one of my next reads. And I'm really looking forward to kind of oh, wow. escaping into the, the healing powers of nature. But Frankenstein felt like quite a good prelude to that. Yeah. Doing the garden, digging the weeds. Who could <laughs> ask for more? Sorry, you, you brought up the Beatles. Um, <laughs> anyway, time is running on. Uh, but I just, I've got one last passage that I marked out that I'd really like to read. Because in a strange way, it reminded me of some of the things we were saying in Boneland. About wondering who the sleeper that wakes in the cave is. Mm. And I had this theory that... Was he the first human because because he, he tells stories and, and that's what makes us human? And this isn't so much about storytelling, but it, it's dis, it's basically the creature's discovery of language. Uh, I think I think it's when he's, you know, earwigging uh, on the, the cottages. By degrees, I made a discovery of still greater moment. I found that these people possessed a method of communicating their experience and feelings to one another by articulate sounds. I perceived that the words they spoke sometimes produced pleasure or pain, smiles or sadness in the minds and countenances of the hearers. This was indeed a godlike science. And I love that. And I know that he's talking sort of specifically about language there and that that's on an obvious level. The ability to speak is what elevates us above animals. Uh, but um, I, I, you know, he very quickly after that uh, incredulously quickly some may say you know he's reading paradise lost um but you know and that's his true awakening and funny going back to adaptations um obviously boris karloff's monster's greatest difference is the fact that he is this kind of you know grunting monosyllabic mm. lumbering brute whereas the creature in the novel is incredibly eloquent yeah, uh and, you know, it's funny yeah it's because like you know it's it's kind of ironic that this creature who we're constantly told is just sort of so wretchedly hideous that no one can bear to look at him has this incredibly beautiful way of speaking and apparently as the sequels went on and i think again in i believe it's in the bride of frankenstein they do it's not quite the same but they have a scene yeah i think it's after the, it's been years since i've seen it but it's after the monster sort of is is still alive and has clawed his way out of the 
smouldering ruins of the windmill and he finds the cottage of an old blind man who kind of ten you know nurses him back to health and gives him stew or whatever and and, I, and it, the famous you know is it food good yeah um and that's he, he kind of learns some words and i think he learns more words as those universal films go on um and apparently Karloff was completely against it because he said that the strength of the character with it was in his silence. Oh. And, 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 and I'm torn with that because in terms of the character that he sort of co-created for that first film, you can see that he is almost like a silent fi- a silent cinema uh, mm. kind of creature. And there's so much expression in his face. Um, and yet it's completely at odds with, uh, with, with the character as written. But it's, it's it's interesting, you know, because like we say, this is probably the no, no, probably about it. This is the oldest book we've we've covered, and I can't Ooh, imagine I that we'll cover that. an older one. To be honest, um, I think next month's book is almost as old, but not Ooh. quite eighteen eighteen forties, I believe. Um, and of course, you've guessed what it is because it's December, and we're going to be doing a Christmas Carol. I have to check the date on that because I thought Christmas Carol was quite a lot more recent. I mean, Dickens was born in 1812, and I think, disgustingly, he was only about 30 when he wrote it. Oh, wow. Right, okay. Yeah, December 1843. Oh, wow, okay. Christmas Carol's old fashioned, but it's not nowhere near as archaic as, as Frankenstein is. You can tell it was a very modern novel, can't you, for its time, whereas Shelley was much more romantic and. Yeah. And, you know. um, so, we'll see you in December for the final episode of a book of breakfast series one a christmas carol uh, tony hayes still hasn't told us whether or not we're getting a second series so you know enjoy it <laughs> it could be your last <laughs>